There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves had their forests to protect, dwarves their minds, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about. We thought the war at last was ended. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is There Can Be No Trust Between Hammer and Rock, our preview episode of the imminent The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power series on Amazon. But first, our spoiler warning. Today, everything Tolkien is on the table, as are the Peter Jackson adaptations of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. We don't know exactly what's in store for us, but we are going to use all the texts and our big brains to make some guesses. (laughs) So as you may know, uh, we just went live with our My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast Patreon. And there are a lot of new benefits and tiers for you all to check out. Uh, Just to give you some big picture highlights, if you are a patron at any level, you now have access to our Discord server, where we'll be talking all about Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power... Probably House of the Dragon, Star Wars, and a ton of other shit, too. Um, We'd love to have you guys join our community, so please sign up, and you will automatically um, have access to the Discord. Additionally, our $5 tier has been upgraded to the Guard of the Citadel, which will um, continue as it has been, providing you with early access to episodes and cat pictures, though now they're probably going to come with Lord of the Rings and Tolkien quotes. Additionally, we have... Uh, decided we're going to allow you to take on a name appropriate for the Tolkienverse or the Legendarium or whatever you want to call it. Um, We will have more detail on how you can submit your names to us in a Patreon post that's actually probably already up by the time you're listening to this. Additionally, at the $5 and above level, you can submit to us listener questions that we will answer on air, either ahead of our normal Two Towers or whatever Lord of the Rings episodes, or in special dedicated uh, mailbag episodes. And those questions do not have to be Lord of the Rings related. So if you're interested in Emily's favorite color, (laughs) um, you can feel free to ask that if you want. We'll also be unveiling a $10 patron level, Hobbits in Arms, and that will include everything we've already discussed, as well as a bonus monthly episode that will begin dropping to you in October. And just a disclaimer about all this, as we're kind of launching all this all at once and also juggling the Rings of Power airing, um, we might be a little bit fluid with how some of these uh, benefits uh, settle in the long term. Speaking of the Rings of Power, we did want to give you a little update on how we plan to cover this series. The first of the eight episodes drops on September 2nd, and mine and Emily's plan is to pretty much watch watch it that morning and then record it like literally right after. <laughs> so these episodes will be a bit more casual than our other episodes and God willing, a bit shorter as well. <laughs> We hope to drop these episodes to our patrons by Monday at the $5 and above level, and then to the public on Wednesday, but given the tight turnaround time around the weekends, that may be shifted a day or two um, on any given week. We'll do our best to keep you updated both on the Patreon and on social media. Evil does not sleep. It waits. Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow barriers all beneath the mountain. He has not one name, but many. Fear 
heard of him, lad? If you heard of Sauron? So right after that July 14th trailer dropped, which me and Emily talked about for um, two hours, um, there was an entirely brand new trailer released at San Diego Comic-Con, which also included a Hall H panel featuring the cast and showrunners. We're not going to do a full shot-by-shot breakdown, but I do want to talk about some of the stuff that stood out from both the trailer and the panel. Trailer first, uh, the initial image is of Galadriel stacking elf helms after a battle, um, probably a monument on the battleground to those that died. Galadriel herself is not in armor or battle garb, and the landscape around them has been totally scorched. Yeah, I thought this was a ballsy thing to kind of foreground right from the start, because again, this looks like the really cheap shit costumes. Um, Like, I'm always excited to see uh, Morfid Clark uh, there and doing cool shit, but like, Party City costumes, not my favorite. Yeah, and it honestly, the backdrop and the stack of skulls honestly (laughs) reminds me of 300, uh, which is not a flattering thing to compare (laughs) to, just with like a gold filter instead of the like dark blue and black filter that was on a lot of the 300 action sequences. So um, this this shot stood out as kind of garish to yeah, me, yeah. all things considered, which again is a really strange choice for the first shot of a trailer, especially at Comic-Con. <laughs> huh. So if that's setting a tone for the conversation, <laughs> we, ne- <laughs> we next see uh, Galadriel receiving a laurel crown in... Um, Linden supposedly, and Gilgalad is there. <laughs> yes, and Gilgalad is b- uh, played by an American, Benjamin Walker, who also did a turn on Broadway uh, at a Tony Award-winning turn. I'm pretty sure uh, in Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is for we'll just call it a musical. It's definitely a musical. I'm not going to append any adjectives to that. Uh, but I'm hyped <laughs> at the fact that it's an American because it's going to make Tolkien like Tolkien's ghost so fucking mad. And when his ghost inevitably comes to haunt. Uh, the Amazon Studios. I'm gonna wrap myself in the Star Spangled Banner and fucking slut drop over his grave. I'm so hyped. America, fuck yeah. <laughs> okay, I did not expect this to go that direction, but <laughs> anyway. Um, we see Muriel showing Galadriel a, pe- a palantir and Galadriel actually looking into it. Something about their worst fears are about to come true. At this point, I barely remember it. But thinking to previous trailer breakdowns, the Galadriel line you have not seen what I've seen exchange with Elrond. Um, that, you know, we discussed might be a vision or foresight, but it's also possible she saw something in the Palantir that she's referring to with Elrond. Of course, Galadriel has seen some actual shit, um, so it could be any of those, but I think this just at least offers another possibility to what she was talking about. Um, and then we do, um, I will say that some of the surrealist imagery we did see in previous trailers, and I'm thinking specifically of that War of Wrath, Tempest of Fire shot with all the drowned people and the burning fire, um, that could be something that is very visiony to me, um, maybe not something we see directly. Yeah. And um, you know what? The lighting in this bit really, really, really worries me. Um, and I, and when I went into this trailer after the, whatever the previous trailer was, whatever the one not the Eminem one, but the one before the Eminem one, which I quite liked. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to go into this trailer. I'm going to be really like open-minded about it. Uh, and uh, then they immediately hit us with a whole bunch of shots that you can't see because it's so dark. Um, and I was literally sitting here and and I've got for work this like big ass 4K uh, screen. It's like 
I don't know, two feet or whatever. It's ridiculous. And like super nice and super bright. And like, theoretically, you should be able to see anything on this. And I was like up against the fucking plastic of the thing being like, I cannot see what's going on in this scene. Um, And that's a huge worry for me because so much of what we've seen so far in these trailers has been kind of like obliquely telegraphed to be like nighttime or dark shots. And we've got all of Moria, Casa Doom coming. And if this is how they're filming the darkness... I am quite concerned I won't actually be able to see uh, the screen, uh, see what's happening on on uh, on the, the screen on in the show. So that's cool. That's exciting. Um, it then goes to a mercifully much brighter scene, uh, which is Gladriel st- standing over a dead blonde dude's body. And I'm going to call it here. I'm going to call it here. I think this is probably... Well, actually, this is not a ballsy take. Uh, I think it's going to be one of Gladriel's brothers. I'm like quite certain it's going to be Fenrod. I'm quite certain, but I think it actually could be either Agnor or Angrod. Um, and Agnor would be interesting because uh, in the story of Andreth and Agnor, uh, which is like the the kind of uh, human elf romance where uh, the woman is a human and the man is an elf, and that's kind of a rare thing uh, in these uh, Prethel combinations. Um, I think they might be trying to go to that because they're going to, I would assume, try and foreshadow this whatever the fuck is going on with Arondir and Bronwyn or whatever. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that's going to be one of the the Arafinwayans, one of Finarfin's dear children, Galadriel's brother. I'm willing to bet it's probably Finrod, but who knows? Maybe they'll be ballsy and do someone else. Uh, I'm hoping for ballsy. If anything yeah. else, I'd like the show to be ballsy because I'm not sure it's going to be. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think we also get to complete a shot we saw from that previous trailer that you were referring to, uh, where we were looking at Muriel and something was coming down on her and we couldn't quite tell if it was ash or like rose petals. Um, but we get a continuation of that shot and it very much, uh, it is very much white petals that are falling from a white tree that remind us of the white tree of Gondor at Minas Tirith we saw in the films. And I think Emily knows what this is. Yeah. So this is actually really funny because that shot where it was the shot where you were like, oh, it could be Ash. Um, and then I think that was the one where I was like, freaking out because you pointed out that they could be starting this off with sinking Numenor right away and you just get Numenor out of the picture from the get-go and I thought that would be quite interesting and now confirmed not gonna do that um <laughs> so the tree uh it, you are right to compare it to the white tree of Gondor uh it is the mother tree of the white tree of Gondor it is Nimloth um and Nimloth was a tree born flowered from a seed of a tree made in the image of Telperion so the two trees of Val- Valinor Lorlin and Telperion uh, and then there was a, oh, a couple trees made um in in their image after Lorlin and Telperion uh were destroyed by Morgoth. Uh, and Caliborn took a seed of one of those trees uh, and gave it to the Numenorians as a sign of their unending friendship. And the Numenorians planted it in Andania, I'm pretty sure. Uh, no, Tor Elysia. Uh, and uh, the that tree was Nimloth. And uh, that tree is kind of Te- not kind of is very much tethered to the kind of rise and fall of Numenor uh, and uh, corruption by Sauron. Uh, we'll talk about this probably a bit later in the show, but uh, Isildur famously stole a fruit from Nemloth, uh, and that fruit he took with him across the sea, across the Sundering Seas to Middle Earth, uh, and took it with him to uh, to what would become Gondor, and there planted the White Tree of Gondor. Uh, so yes, it is a direct relation to <laughs> the White Tree of Gondor. All right, and then we hear these lions. Have you heard of him, lad? Have you heard of Sauron? Yeah, (laughs) Sauron is mentioned several times in this trailer. (laughs) 
with several shots framed as if uh, actor Brittany S- Sisson is playing Sauron, which I'm positive she isn't. Um, if you were online at all the day this trailer dropped, there were a ton of Eminem and Eight Mile jokes because Britty was shown with short blonde hair and a white hoodie look. Um, and uh, she was prominently uh, featured every time the name Sauron was mentioned. Um, I am going to say that I'm 99% sure she is not going to be Sauron and that this is a trailer misdirect. Um, but she is likely an acolyte or someone ensorcelled or maybe a combination of the two. Um, and she's later in the trailer shown blowing cinders and seemingly just up to no good in general. Yes, and she is my wife, uh, and I don't care who she is now. Uh, I will defend her uh, because it's a great look. It's a weird look for like for Sauron. Uh, if she's not Sauron, it's a great look, and I support it wholeheartedly. Um, and uh, Britty aside, we also see several shots of some kind of enemy commander uh someone that other orcs are following and bowing to uh he seems taller than all them and he has gauntlets that evoke sauron's look from the peter jackson film um the trailer wants us to think this is sauron again i think this might be a little bit of a misdirect but i think they're intentionally trying to play on that sorry i ended the sentence weird but i'm gone (laughs) i was like oh my god um (laughs) Yeah, so, okay, so there are a whole bunch of possibilities for this, obviously. What what useless sentence there, Emily, well done. Uh, I think the kind of pervasive rumor on Reddit right now, uh, which I think I alluded to in a previous episode, is this could be Meglin, who was the traitor uh, who led to, well, okay, we won't get into the politics of calling him a traitor. He was involved in one way or another in the fall of Gondolin and not on the good side, Uh, uh, but he may be redeemable, whatever. It could be Meglin. He is an elf. Uh, Maeglin sent back uh, or resuscitated somehow. If that's the case, I'll be furious. I think that's bad. Uh, It could also be a sort of precursor-ish to whoever becomes the Witch King of Angmar. Um, I will wholly admit that I... Maybe I'm just a total dipshit, uh, but when I saw that poster, the character poster with whoever this character is meant to be, I just assumed it was meant to be like the the Witch King of Angmar pre Wraith, uh, Wraithness. Uh, Wraithness is a city in Scotland now. Sorry, it's Caithness. Uh, but um, yeah, so it could be Maeglin, could be precursor to the Witch King of Angmar. Um, I think you're right that it's not going to be Sauron. This is definitely another one of these misdirects. Um, I would like very much for it to be something completely insane. Uh, like not insane as in bringing Maeglin back, but like something else completely insane uh, or a totally new character who just looks cool as shit. Cause I think I'm starting to get sick of like the, Oh, you guys remember this fella, don't you? Uh, but yeah. Uh, and the costume design's quite good actually. And I think you are right is probably because it harkens back so strongly to the Peter Jackson designs. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do not need uh, Lord of the Rings to have its own genre of glup shittos. Um, <laughs> I think there are going to be glup shittos and I think they're going to be glup shittos and things that are not just Star Wars. <laughs> Um, I, I guess, you know, we're super online. If you do not know what a glup shitto <laughs> is, it uh, comes from an internet Star Wars meme. But basically, it's all about how media this these days are about remembering people that showed up in other media. Um, and that's really like the thrust of the point of a lot of TV shows and movies, especially the Star Wars and Marvel world right now. Um, so we just really hope that this show isn't about remembering some guys um, that said, I'm going to remember a guy named Sauron, um, because, um, with all these misdirects on the trailer and where, um, who might be Sauron, um, I have a low key theory or prediction, which, 
Um, one thing I learned from my Game of Thrones days is if you have a theory, you should give it a name. Um, so I'm going to call this the uttermost Westworld uh, theory. Um, I think this first season might be um, it might be built around um, kind of a who is Sauron mystery or who is Sauron posing as um, kind of like in the show Westworld or the film. If you've seen that one, um, you don't really know who's an actual human and who's a robot or host, as they're called in universe. And there's always a mystery and there's generally a reveal is like, oh, this guy was actually a robot and stuff like that. Um, so with a slew of new show invented characters for the Rings of Power, plus whatever canon bending they pursue. Um, there are lots of options to have Sauron kind of be embedded into this cast without the audience knowing it is until the showrunners decide to reveal it, reveal it to us. Uh, he is commonly known as Anatar during this time, but if he can appear in multiple forms, um, they can play him posing as other people before or after settling on Anatar, depending on, you know, what the hell the story ends up being. Um, you know, Celebrimbor may forge the Ring of Power, but there could be other deceptions along the way that they choose to justify. And kind of the other basis for this theory I have is if anyone saw the Immaculate show Justified, uh, season four has a whole mystery about who Drew Thompson is, who is a convict who kind of disappeared 30 years ago and it ended up being a character that was part of the cast since the second season. Um, so it was kind of a nice way to retroactively add a lot of depth to a character that had already been there. Um, a lot different in the world of the Legendarium when so many people are familiar with Sauron already, but that is kind of my low-key prediction for what I think season one might be kind of like an organizing principle to the story. Yeah, I think that is a spectacular call. I think that is probably, you've probably nailed it, uh, to be honest. Um, and the reason I say that with like such uh, hubristic confidence is um, <laughs> I think the fact that we now can probably safely say they're not going to nuke uh, Numenor within like the first <laughs> episode or two of this uh, show tells us that we know that Sauron has to be around until the fall of Numenor uh, because he is uh, like, he is a central figure literally to the dying day of Numenor. Uh, in Numenorean politics, so he, and he also has to be on the Isle of Numenor uh, during all of that. He can't jump around between. So if we know that Numenor is not getting uh, told right from the off, uh, then I think it's probably also likely that they're not going to start with Sauron uh, in captivity or held hostage in Numenor. Uh, so he is probably bouncing around uh, in the far east of Middle-earth. Uh, he is the shadow in the east. Uh, and I think that the, the setup that you're talking about there, and given all the Gladrial lines that you rightly pointed out earlier, like, yeah, I think you've I think you've nailed it from the off. Um, and that also ties in with the very last line in the trailer, um, which I think it might be uh, Brittany Sisson's character, but I'm not entirely sure. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's not, because now that I remember, I think it might be an old grizzled man voice. Um, <laughs> and it says you have been told many lies of Middle Earth. Um, so it's very possible. Like, again, that's just hinting at the deception that they're trying to possibly play with in this first season. Um, and another thing I'll mention here, um, appropriate of nothing, is uh, Joseph Malway, who uh, Game of Thrones viewers might remember as Benjamin Stark, uh, brother to Ned Stark and uncle to Rob, John, Sansa, and the rest. He was cast in the show very early on, but has not visibly shown up as far as I can tell. Some people theorize that that orc column in the second trailer that was kind of walking up the causeway might have had him in it. Um, but I don't think that's confirmed. I don't think who he is is really confirmed. 
Um, so I'm really curious if perhaps he ends up being Sauron in the long run or if there's any other something that's tied to this casting. Because um, I wouldn't call Joseph Maui like a very famous actor, but having that kind of Thrones facial recognition surely has some kind of value to them, um, especially because they want to make their own Game of Thrones, essentially. <laughs> um, whoop. Uh, I can't believe you got there first uh, in this episode. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, there's another grizzled old man actor I'm looking out for, uh, and maybe I've just missed. No, I, so I don't think I've like missed his voice. I'm pretty sure uh, Peter Mullen, uh, we can hear him at the start of this trailer. He's just got that, he's got that voice that you recognize from anywhere. I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter Mullen's voice we've already heard, but I don't think we've seen Peter Mullen's face. Um, and when it was announced that he was cast in this, I immediately did the, they're going to cast him as a dwarf and I'm be fucking mad about it. And I don't think they've cast him as a dwarf. Maybe. Um, but I'm still waiting for him to show up. Uh, and he's a he's a phenomenal character actor, just a really like insidious looking dude who kind of brings this like uh, Ouija hard man kind of heft to any role that he he uh, takes up. Uh, and and also in Sunshine on Leaf, uh, where he is not any of those things, uh, where he's quite a nice uh, middle class Edinburgh father uh, who sings. Uh, but I'm really excited to see where he shows up. And I think we've heard his voice in the trailer. But if anybody here in the world, in the, the podcast sphere, whatever the fuck, uh, has spotted Peter Mullen in anything, please tag me in it because I would like to know. Uh, ironically enough, he was actually in Westworld himself. Um, he was uh, a minor character. He was the father of Dolores, who is played by Rachel Lee Cook. All um, right. I hope that's the right person, and I'm not naming the person from She's All That. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I think I might actually be naming the person from <laughs> She's All you. That. <laughs> uh, um, Evan Rachel Wood, that is yes. <laughs> that uh, actor from Westworld. So um, if you've been waiting you know, through our podcast series for me to reference She's All That, well, there, there you go. The last thing I'll mention about the trailer is that we get, let's say, more uh, beasts or creature or monster shots than we have seen uh, in any previous trailer. Um, we've seen uh, shots of Galadriel on a raft, like kind of like floating away from some wreckage or uh, whatnot. We've seen her on several water vehicles, I think, in previous trailers. <laughs> uh, but in this uh, trailer, we see what appears to be like a giant sea monster. Um, if sea monster might be a bit much, it's probably just a whale, um, but it definitely looks more Leviathan than Kraken. Uh, Emily, is there anything about sea monsters or beasts in Middle Earth that might matter or show up here? Um, not really. Um, not really. Uh, there is the, there are the sea snakes that are mentioned in the adventures of Tom Bombadil. Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, you've got like the Watcher in the water in, in the Lord of the Rings outside Moria. Uh, for the most part, the seas are not treated in the same way as I think a lot of kind of modern, and, and by that, I mean like modern, proper modern, uh, like 17, well, 1492 onwards, uh, lit where there's something deep and horrifying lurking in, uh, the seas. Uh, when the seas show up as a harbinger of anything uh, horrific in Tolkien's work, it's usually literally the sea. So usually in the form of a wave. Uh, so either the wave of uh, like the wave that took down Numenor or the wave that appears to, uh, well, various characters. There's like three or four uh, who get dreams sent to them by Olmo, uh, the, the Vala who, who lives under the sea, uh, and under the sea. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's usually as a wave <laughs> and not as a sea monster. Um, 
I would love for it to be a whale. I would love for Gladriel to turn to the camera about five minutes into this thing and go, call me Ishmael. Uh, that would about make my day. Uh, but yeah, I don't know what the, the context is for, for this particular thing. <laughs> and then the stinger for this trailer after the title card and release date and prime video logos flash is a shot of the Balrog or a Balrog, um, but it looks identical to the one that Gandalf fought in the films. Um, I want to say it's going to be the same because we are going to be in Moria. So I imagine we see Durin's Bane at some point in this series. Oof. I wouldn't have thought the first season, but um, who knows? Um, and if they take the dwarves seriously enough in the story, um, it could be a fairly tragic and poignant moment if done well. So outside of the trailer, there was some additional footage shown to the audience. And I'm just I just bullet pointed what was shown. So I don't really know what the content of them is. But there appears to be um, Elrond doing some sort of endurance test in Moria uh, with uh, Durin the Fourth. Um, we've seen shots of him entering Moria, but I don't think we had any idea what he was up to at the given moment. Yeah, God fucking knows. Um, they've had Elrond and Gladriel all over Middle Earth in these these trailers, uh, and like I'm trying to kind of withhold my judgment on that particular thing for now because uh, because I'm trying to be overly nice during this. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, but yeah, they've had them all over the place and it's very weird. Uh, I guess my my kind of consolation here is that Elrond, having been raised by Maglor and to a lesser extent Maedhras, uh, has some sort of kind of uh, parental-ish relationship to the dwarves in that Maedhras uh, had a very close and very good like genial relationship with the dwarf Azagal. Uh could be echoes of that in whatever the fuck is going on here between Elrond and Durin. Uh, one of the things that I find kind of interesting is, again, that we haven't seen Kel- uh not Celebrimber, Celeborn. We have seen Celebrimber. Oh my god, I can't get started on that. Uh, we haven't seen Celeborn yet. Uh, and Celeborn and the dwarves have a very interesting relationship. Uh, and uh, I'm almost wondering if there is going to be, and I'm saying this with like absolute fear in my heart, I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of like counterpositioning of uh, Celeborn's opinion of the dwarves with Elrond's apparent opinion of the dwarves and that Celeborn's going to be like, fuck them dwarves and Elrond's going to be like dwarves, they're our pals um, so yes, we'll see where this goes I'm skeptical, but who knows um, we get there was a scene of Erondir, who is one of the show created characters uh, who is enslaved by orcs at the time and apparently <sighs> rising up against his captors uh, make of that what you will, who knows <laughs> this is all you know, show invented stuff uh, theoretically uh, and then we also see Galadriel as commander of Northern Armies, possibly. <coughs> um, she is talking to Elrond, um, and she's complaining about frostbite from a troll. We talked about a snow cave and a troll in a previous trailer. Um, and I think Elrond in this scene says something along the lines of, tell me everything, which not that that's like a super memorable quote, but that's the exact <laughs> same words that Gandalf asked of Faramir uh, regarding Frodo's movements in Return of the King. So um, not sure if that's supposed to be a thing, but I flagged that from the notes I saw online. Nice. That rocks. Um, I totally uh, failed to recognize what bit this is. Uh sorry i failed to recognize what the source of this bit was i was thinking this was a different bit so i'm just gonna go ahead and say this um morphid clark is already my definitive galadriel and i am certain they're gonna do something absolutely buck fucking wild that's gonna make me really mad uh with her like i i know it's coming i can feel deep in my soul (laughs) that this is gonna happen there's no way that i could like get something this good out of this tv show but despite whatever wacky shit they're inevitably gonna do for her like she is 
as far as I'm concerned, a thousand percent bang on. Uh, like when I read uh, Galadriel in The Lord of the Rings or when I read uh, Galadriel's scant bits in uh, the Silmarillion or the tale of uh, Celeborn and, and Galadriel, she she is the closest I've ever seen to, to embodying that almost perfectly. Uh, so I'm going to love to hate her during the show. Uh, it might be the only thing I do love about this show. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, that is the thing. Like she and every single clip that I've seen so far is really just embodying this character with the right level of kind of cynicism and delusion and i'm hyped for that all right and then just some other kind of panel notes um the showrunners were kind of leading the panel and i just want to get their names in here right now because we always call them the mormons (laughs) um so i just want to make sure we have that right it's patrick mckay and jd Payne. um i do want to read about read this quote that they gave and then allow emily to dunk on it uh the quote is it's a human story How far into the darkness are you willing to go to reach the good? The world is in a different state, the second age. It's about reintroducing this world and there's a new evil, they said during the panel. They added, we didn't want to do a spinoff. We wanted to find a huge Tolkienian epic. We we can also expect to see the downfall of Numenor depicted on screen. Great. Uh, yes. One of the episode directors, I can't remember who off the top of my head, also went to the press with this thing, this line about it's a human story and how far into the darkness are you willing to go and how that was a that was a message direct from Tolkien. To which I am going to say, <laughs> who the fuck do you think Boromir is? No part of Tolkien's story is about how far into the darkness are you willing to go. The whole point of Everything Tolkien writes is that the minute you start to embrace the dark, you can never come back from it. The whole point is you have to maintain the things that make you good and the things that make you great when you're trying to fight against evil, because otherwise it will corrupt you. And I am like, I'm a little bit baffled and a little bit not, because obviously like the trendy thing in storytelling now is this like morally gray shit about like the bad guys who go overseas to Afghanistan or Iraq and torture these people. And maybe they were innocent, but really it was all for the good of America. Oh wait, that's the subtext. The actual text of these stories is sometimes good people can do bad things for good reasons. And it's not at all manufacturing consent for insane shit that people do overseas, like torture and invade for no reason. That is not at all the message of Tolkien's work. Not at all the message. And I'm a little bit concerned that this is the thing that they've now pushed at least twice that I've seen so far in the press because it's wrong. It's a total misreading. Uh, And if you can't see like the fact that Boromir's corruption through the entire of entirety of Fellowship of the Ring is about saying you cannot use the darkness as a weapon against the dark, then fuck, man. Fuck. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know where we're going from here, but it ain't good. Uh, Where we do know we're going is that the dwarves supposedly (laughs) will not be the butt of jokes, um, which, you know, Gimli was very much used as comic relief um, to varying effect during the films. But um, they promised that the dwarves are not just going to be a whole bunch of jokes. I guess the Hobbit films just were jokes. So it's, you know, that's, (laughs) uh, you know, 13 dwarves that kind of like got sucked in with the suckiness of all that. So um, and they did say that the dwarf women. Sorry. The dwarf women will have facial. <coughs> Sorry, Jesus, I can't. Eat. Uh, I think uh, some dark force is preventing me from. <coughs> oh my God! 
Uh, Emily, you speak about dwarves and facial hair. Yes, the dwarf women apparently will have facial hair. Uh, and and to this I say, I was really mad about this earlier uh, when uh, a different thing from one of the showrunners or one of the actresses maybe came out saying that the dwarf women would not have facial hair because I was like, of all of the things to get rid of from like, so, so, so dwarven women canonically, I hate to do this, canonically they do not have facial hair. However, that has only been canon since like, October of 2021, so like six months ago. Until then, it was 100% ambiguous in the text, all of the text. There was nothing to definitively say that dwarf women did or didn't have beards. And it was, therefore, the coolest shit ever that people had largely accepted that dwarf 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 women had beards. I thought that was really fun. I thought that was really cool. I thought that was like a a really kind of nice, surprising way in which people were willing to accept like a bit of like gender nonconformity, such as it were. Uh, And then I was like, when I saw that whole bit from whoever it was being like, actually the dwarven women won't have beards. I was like, for fuck's sake, like the one thing they like choose to like stick to canon on is the one thing that like is objectively worse in canon than anywhere else. Uh, But I think they've redeemed themselves. If they are going to give a dwarf woman a beard i will be very 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 pleased uh, and and like i will probably be willing to excuse quite a lot of the sins of this tv show if they actually do that and not in a shitty like lesbian kiss in the rise of skywalker way where you could like easily fucking photoshop it out with a coke <laughs> machine no i want like close-ups of a dwarf woman in a beard commit to the fucking bit lads Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. But now I'm just thinking about Henry Cavill in the Joss Whedon Justice League, (laughs) where he had a mustache for his Mission Impossible role that they had to like CGI out. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, That has nothing to do with any of this. Sorry, but my mind wandered a bit to that. Yeah, so the other things that we got out of this panel is that they uh, mercifully don't have any plans to take this into the Third Age, uh, and the Third Age uh, effectively starts with the arrival of uh, Elendil Isildur and Anarian properly in Middle-earth and the fall of Numenor, so that puts a like a very definitive endpoint on this story. That's good to know. Uh, it's also good to know because it cuts off uh, quite a lot of the sort of elven threads uh, that are that kind of linger in the background of the, the kind of more important, uh, well, I think more important story of, of Numenor and its fall. Uh, so we know very clearly what's going to happen there. Uh, and then we've also got a, a casting a casting decision, not casting decision. We've got a name for this character known as the stranger who is not uh, the Camus stranger going to go shoot a <laughs> Middle Earth uh, Algerian, I guess, and feel nothing about it. Uh, Daniel Wayman uh, is playing the stranger. Uh, and and this is a I, like, it feels a little bit like a tautology to be like, this is a much discussed character because he actually really isn't. But he is, I think, the character that's going to kind of be the linchpin of this series in an incidental way. Uh, and so having uh, having this name now means that we're all going to get to play Where's Wally for the next three fucking weeks until this thing comes out and we figure out who the hell he's meant to be. So that's exciting. So next, I guess we can discuss a little bit about the lore backstory we expect to see. And like I've communicated to you many times, I'm actually going into this fairly clean, um, only really knowing what I do know because of Emily. Um, so Emily, why don't why don't you just take it away? <laughs> oh boy, uh, more dangerous words have never been said. Uh, yeah, so I guess I kind of want to take this thing to acknowledge, like I recognize that I'm being like a huge, deeply uncharitable bitch about this, this story. Uh, and I recognize that that's like not actually going to be fun for anybody but me for the next two months. Um, so I'm kind of trying to like, you know, uh, in style, learn and grow as a person and, you know, be really benevolent or whatever. Uh, so I'm going to set myself a challenge throughout this show. 
uh, to try to ask and answer a question that will hopefully keep me more uh, entertained and entertaining than just like seething with rage over things that fundamentally don't really matter. Um, so if this podcast, if my brother, my captain, my podcast generally is interested in the questions of why do we make adaptations and how do we make them, then I want to use our little series here on the Rings of Power to start an, to ask and answer the question, what do we adapt and why? Um, and I realize that's quite a lofty goal for what is going to be an eight episode Amazon show. Uh, so I kind of want to set this up in a very on-brand fashion with a look into the source material. Um, we have to do this by going back to the basics. Uh, there's an order of operations for telling a story. Um, we begin with a purpose for our story and flesh out everything else and a store and world to fit that purpose. We do not, for the most part, start with a world and work backwards to find a story within it. So <laughs> when writing a story, we have to ask two key questions. The first of which is, what is the purpose of our story? The second of which is, how do the narrative elements, think character, setting, pacing, etc., serve that purpose for our story? Here, we're going to use the story of Numenor from the Silmarillion as a case study. To ask and answer the first question, which is that of purpose, we have to go with an initially quite half-assed answer. The purpose in the first instance is to build out an English mythology on a comparable scale to Arthuriana. Numenor itself doesn't actually serve a specific purpose independent of the wider legendarium, and this is important. So Numenor as an entity doesn't actually appear in Tolkien's writings until roughly the 1930s. His early work before that and post-1914 focused primarily on the elves and the creation of Middle-earth with a couple side entries from Turin Turnbar. And it isn't until Tolkien begins to truly flesh out the kingdoms of men, spurred in no, part, no small part by that work on Turin Turnbar, and of course his work on The Hobbit, that we really start to see Numenor come to life. What Tolkien needed to truly imbue the men of Middle-earth with a legendary past befitting their keenly felt fall from grace was, well, a fall from grace. He'd written about the noble and the tragic with Turin and Hiran and Morin, who we can talk about at a much later date. <laughs> but these are individual stories, not given to a systemic explanation of why the men are suffering. Numenor, then, is inspired by Atlantis and Tolkien's own nightmares, interestingly enough, and was, frankly, begging to be born. The story of Numenor is essentially the story of Atlantis filtered through a Middle-earth lens. Numenor was founded by Elros, brother of Elrond, whose story we recounted in some of our earlier coverage on the Fellowship of the Ring. Elros married, had children, and his sons and their sons ruled Numenor as kings. And before the men of Numenor were the men of Numenor, and through their relationship via Elros to Eärendil the Mariner, they came to the aid of the elves in the War of Wrath, and for that were rewarded with blessings by the Valar. Long life, expansion of physical and mental powers, and uh, they became super tall. I will not say the <laughs> word ubermenschen. <laughs> Anyways, these semi-superpowered men turned their island nation of Numenor into a pretty bumpin' kingdom. The men of Numenor then colonized vast swathes of Middle-earth, from the Harati coast in the far south, to Dol Amroth in what would become Gondor, to huge chunks of Eriador. Think of these guys as the Greeks in the stories the Romans told, more Ulysses than Odysseus. 
So Numenor was a proud and noble kingdom, the height of mankind on earth. They were as pious as one could be in a world without religion, and as close to the height of benevolent empire as I will reasonably call anything. But the Numenorians weren't infallible, and aside from the pretty grim history of how they treated their ruling queens in advance of the fall, they took a pretty shocking turn towards the latter part of the Second Age. It began, kind of, with Tar Muriel, who ought to have inherited the throne from her father, Tar Palantir. She, however, was raped by her cousin Farazon, who usurped her title and named himself King of Numenor, taking the title Ar Farazon the Golden. Ar Farazon was a deeply arrogant man, and after hearing that Sauron had become, begun to attack the Numenorean colonies in Middle-earth and now wished to crown himself King of Men, decided that he deserved to be King of Men, and proceeded to chase on Sauron. To his credit, he did ultimately capture Sauron in the city of Umbar, though it's pretty clear that Sauron gave himself up. Sauron took on a more beautiful form and humbled himself before Farazon, playing to his pride and vanities, Wow, sounds like sexy Grima. <clears throat> and Farazone took him captain and brought him back to Numenor, where within literally three years, Sauron beco had become his chief political advisor. Sauron being Sauron convinced the king and the people of Numenor that he could teach them how to outsmart the doom of men. In other words, how to become immortal. But to do this, they had to forsake the valor. This is a big... <laughs> Sauron instructed Farazon to destroy Nimloth, the white tree of Numenor that we previously spoke about, which had stood for a thousand or more years as a sign of friendship between the men and the elves. Isildur, in the skies, stole a fruit from Nimloth, after which Farazon, enraged at the theft, had the tree burned in a temple, a temple which the Numenorians would later use to worship Morgoth. As Farazon aged, he began to panic that he had not been granted his immortality. Sauron instructed him that the only way to attain immortality was by waging war on the Valar. <laughs> Farazon accordingly made his preparations for war, and the Valar, in response, called upon Eru Iluvatar for aid. Eru, making one of his extremely rare interventions, quite literally broke the world and made it round, sundering Valinor from the earth and drowning Numenor beneath the waves. In the Silmarillion, this story is mostly recounted in the Akalabath. We get as much detail in this story as we do in any traditional retelling of The Drowning of Atlantis. There is little detail on the specific actors involved, save Sauron, Farazon, Muriel, and Isildur, and Isildur's family. And even then, it's not as if they're standing around having extended conversations with one another. And this is crucial. The reason for this is because the story exists entirely in service of a wider purpose that is not answered in that story. Numenor exists to act as a fairly traditional warning about the excesses and fallibility of kings, the might of God, and the importance of religious and political exoduses to the founding of national myths. Numenor itself is most important to the story of the Lord of the Rings, to fleshing out Aragorn's story, to giving a moral and political purpose to the story of Gondor and Arnor, and it is not I repeat, not intended to stand on its own as a story in the style of The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. The fact that we're now having an entire TV show that is in large part dedicated to this question of Numenor raises the question of why? Why do we need to hear this much about Numenor? What is it doing? What is the message of this show going to be? And why does it have to be across five fucking seasons and a billion dollars? 
obviously I can't answer any of this right now, given that we're still three weeks out from the show actually dropping. But it's a series of questions that I really, really, really want everybody to keep in their heads as they're going through watching this. And it's, to be honest, kind of one of these questions that you should always be asking, which is, why are we seeing this? Who does it serve? And for what purpose? And what is the message that we're meant to take away from this? Numenor, within the context of the Legendarium, serves a very, very tight and specific purpose, and there's a reason why we don't have an entire series about it in the way that we do The Lord of the Rings. So as we're going through this TV show, we have to ask, why was this expanded into as many hours of content as it was, and is it successful and worthwhile as an exercise? Uh, Yeah, to be honest, a lot of that could also apply to House of the Dragon, which will be dropping at the same time. (laughs) Um, Because the story is, uh, I mean, George refers to it as like the G-R-R-M million or the Gurr million, similar to the Silmarillion or whatever. Oh, God. Um, And it is is a lot of Targaryen backstory, but it is not written like A Song of Ice and Fire where you get dialogue and see all the individual bit players. It's more just broad strokes history, what happened. Um, And a lot of that is there just to like create this immense history, both just for his world and generally, but also Targaryen history so that everything happening with Daenerys and Jon Snow um, is a little bit more poignant. Um, The thing that is kind of fun, and I'm sorry to get in the House of the Dragon tangent here, is that because George has not finished A Song of Ice and Fire, um, his fleshing out the the backstory has actually been Almost like him playing with his toys without like committing anything to ink. <laughs> like if you read Fire and Blood, um, there is uh, an interaction between Queen Alysanne Targaryen and Lord Alaric Stark of Winterfell, like years before Game of Thrones. But you can tell that Lord Alaric is supposed to be a Stannis figure and Queen Alysanne is supposed to be a Sansa figure. And that the way their stories are kind of lining up in Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire, rather, they're probably going to meet in one of the last two books. Um, so George was able to use Fire and Blood, uh, the basis for House of the Dragon, to be like, what would these two characters meet look like a little bit? Can I play around with some ideas here? And will this help me write the actual stuff when I get to my real thing? Um, which is very different from what the Silmarillion is to the Lord of the Rings. Um, but it just... You could ask yourself a lot of the same questions. I think they apply to both of the shows and what's going to be happening. Um, And, you know, to be honest, a lot of it is just to make money because it's an identifiable (laughs) brand um, and it will make money and it will get viewership on your streaming service. um, And then possibly things like Funko Pops and people will (laughs) cosplay it and it'll be a TikTok trend. And um, I guess that's how we measure success these days. But, um, you know, why it exists, like I can kind of see like just purely from a creative standpoint, someone loves this thing and they want to kind of play in that sandbox. Um, And for a lot of people, I think that's enough as long as the output is fun or enjoyable, uh, regardless of how much it says. I think the MCU can show you that things don't have to say a lot for people to love them. Um, In fact, they can say little and less. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I, I I think what you're proposing is not just a good framework for approaching this show, but a good framework for approaching any piece of art especially right now in the world, um, because a lot of it is being the ideology behind why it's created is almost divorced from the artistic side in nine out of 10 cases right now. Um, So it should be, you know, we should be a little bit wary of it all. Yeah, I I think one of the other things is, right, like, I think, um, you know, in the case of something like, for example, the MCU, like, you know, I have my own thoughts on the MCU, whatever, whatever. But like, I don't think I would ever... 
Except for in the broad sort of stop buying into military propaganda sense. Um, I don't think I would ever kind of apply that like framework in as as aggressive of a way as I am with uh, this show. And I think I said this on the last preview episode that we did, but like the only reason I'm doing it is because these guys have set that standard for themselves. If they had just shut the fuck up about how much they care about the lore and how interested they are and how this is going to be like a perfect sort of add on to the world of uh, the legendarium and how it's this like very scholarly take on it. I would not in a million years have applied it this kind of thinking to it like you know even in our sort of normal coverage uh, of of peter jackson's films um i i am fairly lenient like i i guess that's quite funny for me to say now but like i'm fairly <laughs> lenient all things considered in terms of like uh the actual lore itself like you know i've made my peace with fucking aragorn being libertarian dude bro of the year whatever like because it is obvious that like peter jackson was interested in the story and not the lore and that is two different things. Like those are two very important mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. very different things. But the fact that these guys keep going to the press being like, we are interested in the lore. We are interested in the lore. And then buggering up the lore. I'm like, stop saying this. You do- Nobody has asked you to say that you are Tolkien scholars. Nobody in the world has asked for this. They've asked for you to be screenplay writers who are hired for by Amazon for a billion dollars to write a story. You don't have to like either lie or overinflate your ego to be like, we're lore masters or whatever. Don't do it. Just don't do it. And then I won't have to, like, fucking condescend to you on a podcast that, like, they're never going to listen to, like, about, like, whether or not lore is good. Like, don't set that, like, standard for yourself and nobody will ask you to meet it. Stop. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Honestly, if they just hadn't said it, I would have let that shit go. Oh, well. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, a good transition into our final section we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about our expectations for the series. Um, And to kind of kick it off, we're going to start by uh, answering one of our listener questions. Um, This is from Robert Flom, uh, who's at Rich Rich Homie Flom on Twitter. (laughs) Um, He's one of my mutuals. He's a good dude. Um, So he has a few questions to ask. Um, I have lifted the first three questions because they're about the Rings of Power. Uh, Robert, we will get to your other questions in some future episode or possibly a mailbag episode. Um, So his first question for us is... What's your overall biggest worry or fear about the Rings of Power? Emily? (laughs) Fuck. Uh, Yeah, so I think I'm worried that it's going to make a billion dollars the new industry standard for TV shows. Like, um, I think I've probably dialed this back a bit since the first uh, teaser trailer came out however many months ago. But, like, I think at this point I would be much angrier at a billion-dollar TV show that nailed every single characterization and plot beat perfectly than I would at a million-dollar TV show that had, like, Elrond and Gladriel shagging or whatever. Um, Because I think at this point I'm more annoyed at what this injection of money, kind of producer style, uh, is doing to the industry and to, like, our expectations for film and TV than I am about them uh, screwing up the relationship between Tar Muriel and Arferazon or like whether or not they accurately translate like Tir Harad into Eastern or Southern Watchtower or whatever the fuck it is. Like at this point I'm like there's too much money in this thing and that worries me and I don't think that should become the standard. I almost want it to fail just so that nobody ever puts a billion dollars into a TV show ever again. Hmm. Yeah. Um I mean I in the absolute sense, I agree with you. The other problem is, though, so much of TV looks cheap right now, so yeah. I don't know how much money they're actually putting in, and it's definitely not going to paying their visual artists and creators, so <laughs> let me get that piece of uh, politics out there. <laughs> um, I guess, I don't know. Um, 
my biggest fear or worry is that just it kind of sucks, <laughs> um, which is, I guess, the opposite of Emily's take. She doesn't want it to be good and I don't want it to be bad, which kind of tells you where we're at. Um, uh, I, I mean, I don't really, really care. Um, as we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode, um, a lot of my love is still from just that original Jackson trilogy. Mm. Um, and like this, what is it necessarily? It does. I don't think it has the capability of like souring me on either those movies or the Tolkien text or anything else I love about, you know, Rings of Power or sorry, the Lord of the Rings. Otherwise, <laughs> um, I it's it's pr- like the worst case scenario is it that it ends up being the book of Boba Fett and I just completely forget its existence, <laughs> um, which may be, you know, maybe what I want in the long run, but um, I just don't want it. I don't want it to be like a couple kids who got action figures and just start smashing them together because they can kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I would just love for it to say something like be meaningful. Like, cause I think there is a great story, especially in what you told us about the sinking of Numenor. Um, and like, you know, the hubris of man and all that stuff that goes with it. Like you can tell a really compelling story and with the tools that uh, Tolkien has laid out, you know, the world, the di- various peoples, the technologies, like y- there's just some fun things to play with. Like this has nothing to do with anything, but I would love to see an ant somewhere in the show yeah. uh, just because I think ants are cool and I would like to see them. Um, so it's just like, I don't want to see someone take all those fun things and things I love and, you know, ideas I like and just kind of water it down into the content sludge that is like Book of Boba Fett or Moon Knight or literally any other major show um, out there right now. It just nothing feels inspired and it would really, really suck if this also feels uninspired given how much inspiration I personally draw from the Lord of the Rings movies and then now uh, especially Tolkien's uh, books as well. So um, I just I just don't want it to be a giant bummer, I guess, yeah. um, is my biggest fear. I think this is kind of interesting because I think this kind of like pseudo-dialectic we're getting at here is like the problem. And, and, you know, I think it's also something that we tend to talk about a lot in the context of Star Wars and whatever godless shit they're churning out on Disney Plus right now um, with Star Wars. But like there's this kind of like dual loyalty between like being a fan of something and wanting something to be good like you're talking about there because these are things that like you love and you enjoy and like bring you joy in your life which is an increasingly kind of rare scarce resource in in this day and age and and so wanting on those terms for something to be good and then also as someone who is like or as people who are like politically conscious also recognizing that there is this like wildly like degrading sort of impact on on the rest of the world through these like massive uh like content factories and like i think it is something that's like particularly relevant in light of like star wars where star wars went from being you know more or less we can argue about like the kind of uh veracity of star wars indie cred but like lucasfilm was an indie studio uh and 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 star wars was definitively made outside of the the kind of classic studio system and was made um you know rightly or wrongly in opposition to a lot of the guild rules uh, that governed Hollywood. Um, And it was very much an outsider sort of production. And I think a lot of that kind of outsider cred is a lot of the reason why people love it so much and why it was able to do the things that people love. And now it has, of course, become like, you know, in this kind of classic boomer trajectory, I guess, you know, not to reduce everything to shitty generational politics, but like, you know, it went from being the kind of hippie outsider with like vaguely new left politics to being quite literally the man. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's that kind of push and pull as a Star Wars fan between holy fuck that theme music just makes you want to fucking get up and yell Tarzan style to there is a Rube what's the tweet like a Rube Goldberg of human misery that gets 
triggered every single time you press play on a Star Wars movie on Disney Plus. And like, I think this Rings of Power TV show, like really is bringing that to the fore for like a lot of Lord of the Rings fans in a way that Peter Jackson's films never really did uh, because it was just kind of that scaled back version of this. And like this kind of thing between like, God, wouldn't it be great if we had a billion dollar TV show that looked like a billion dollars for the works of J.R. Tolkien versus this is already not a TV show that looks like a billion dollars and fuck, what does that mean for everything else? And I think, um, and this is something we do talk about a lot on our podcast is when Peter Jackson made those films, everything that you could imagine was not possible. Like there had to be like severe production like they had to like forward new technologies and come up with new ways to do things just to bring to life what they could of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, and like, you know, even though I hadn't read the books or was not part of the fandom before the films, I'm sure a lot of people were asking, like, how are they going to pull it off? How are they going to make this seem real? How is Gollum going to work? All that kind of stuff. And now just because you can basically do whatever you want visually inside a computer. It doesn't feel like there's any real bounds or any kind of like, how are they going to pull it off? Um, which just kind of drains it of any kind of like hyper excitement that I yeah. might feel otherwise about it. It just like, I know they can visually do whatever they want. And then it just becomes so much more about the choices they make. Um, and I lose sight of the production values of some of it. And I don't think the production values look super high in the first place, but it's not impressive to me because they're not doing anything I don't think is really stretching the medium or whatever. Um, so yeah. um, I guess uh, the flip side of that is Robert's next question. What's the most positive sign you've had from Rings of Power footage, or what are you most excited or optimistic for? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if I said her name enough times in the course of this podcast. Morphid Clark as Gladriel. I, if you had asked me like six months ago if I thought that the thing I would be most excited for about the Rings of Power was one, an elf, and two, Galadriel in particular, <laughs> I would have laughed in your fucking face. Uh, and now I'm like, this is it. This is going to be the thing. They're going to crush and obliterate Galadriel's kind of nice and perfectly innocent fucking vibes that Kate Blanchett beautifully gives her in the Peter Jackson films and instead it's going to be the correct position which is Gladriel fucking sucks and I'm so excited for that I can't even like put it into words how excited I am uh yes that's my insane take <laughs> yeah and I will say um that is also my answer um, but I'm going to be a little bit of a sap and a cheat here. And I think my what I'm most excited for is to talk about this with Emily specifically. Oh. Um, just because, A, you know, I love Emily. But also, I listen to a fair amount of pop culture podcasts that are covering whatever the latest thing is, whether it's something garbagey like Kenobi or something great like Better Call Saul. <laughs> um, and I kind of just know the standard, like, discourse beats that go through every TV show that comes out right now. And I think Emily truly has... <laughs> You can call it insights or insanities, whatever works for you, but like genuinely interesting observations. And I don't think our coverage is going to be like every other coverage that you're going to be reading out there or listening to. Um, you know, I'm sure they're doing great stuff over at like the Ringer and Vanity Fair and all that stuff. But um, I think we're going to have the most insane Rings of Power <laughs> coverage. And that is legitimately exciting to me. Um, so, and we'll use that to pivot to the third question, because what says insanity like this question? <laughs> On a scale of one to the last Jedi, how toxic is the Rings of Power discourse going to be? <laughs> Wait, uh, okay, I, I actually really want to hear your take on this first, especially vis-a-vis -vis whatever the fuck happened with Game of Thrones and the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. <laughs> yeah, so, um, 
Toxic. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, I, I like saying the word insane a lot, and I know I should probably say that word less. Um, but I think I think there's going to be a bit of a fever pitch here because A, the Tolkien verse, I should stop calling it that. The legendarium does not get like <laughs> adaptations as prominently or as regularly as, say, like Star Wars or Marvel stuff. So um there is a little bit of that like starved demographic, people who just want like new Tolkien content, which I hate saying those two words together. <laughs> uh so there's going to be a lot of palpable excitement from it from a lot of people who just want to see some new Middle Earthy things, um, and then there's go- I don't think we're toxic, even though I think we're going to come out a little more on the <laughs> negative end. Um, I just think you know we're a little more jaded by the general pop culture landscape and also less impressed with glup shittoing this or <laughs> um, uh, you know something that might be visually cool in concept but kind of looks just bad in CGI, green screen, whatever. I don't know exactly what technology they're uh, going to be using. Um, but I think the fact that this is going to be airing right alongside House of the Dragon, um, which is going to, A, like, relight a lot of that Game of Thrones um, absurd fandom community, like, internet blowing up every time, and then that a lot of people are going to be comparing the two. Um, I, the thing is, the reason I can't answer this question is because I don't really consider myself part of the Lord of the Rings fandom. He says, hosting a Lord of the Rings podcast. <laughs> um, I don't interact with um, the Redditors and the Tumblers. I don't really listen or consume any other Lord of the Rings content other than what Emily puts in front of me. Um, so it's, I don't really have a good like beat on the fan base like um, I do say with Game of Thrones or the Marvel Cinematic Universe where I'm a little more involved in that. Um, so I'm curious with you who are much deeper into the fandom, how toxic do you think it's going to be? Oh, I mean, it's already a fucking mess. Uh, it's already a fucking mess. Um, like I, I have one of the things that I think I feel like I really kind of consistently need to do is make apologies for Tumblr in general, because I actually think since the like weird kind of porn, uh, exodus that happened after Tumblr banned porn, uh, and the kind of like <laughs> scum like me that stuck through it, uh, and are still on the site um there, there's a lot of really interesting kind of and i will call it genuinely i will call it work because i think a lot of the kind of writing that people do about uh the legendarium on tumblr um easily easily matches the standard of uh academic writing on on tolkien um and and uh it's not stuff that you can get on twitter it's certainly not stuff that you can get on reddit which is an absolute fucking dumpster dive of uh of place for fandom i i have uh, as little respect as is humanly possible for the various Tolkien subreddits, including the ones that pretend to be scholarly because they are mostly just fucking co- like covers for for Nazis and freaks. Uh, so no respect for the Reddit people, but the Tumblr folks, um, and it is not a huge group of people, but um, it is a substantial group of people. They're all like very <laughs> clever and and very good at writing down their thoughts and very insightful and and very talented in their various sort of art forms. Uh, they are dragging each other beaten and bloody through the streets uh, over this uh, and and the split between people who are like don't touch the show it is an insult to Tolkien's memory and how dare you uh, do anything related to Amazon because Amazon is neo techno feudalism whatever versus the people who are like well it's going to be everywhere anyways if you watch it through uh, semi legal means then who cares uh, is actually quite funny versus the people who are just like I'm not going to watch it because it looks like shit uh, which is a position that I respect um 
It's toxic. It's really bad over there right now. It's funny. It's not as bad as Star Wars bad, but it is quite funny, funnily bad. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting from a kind of fandom point of view, because at some point, unfortunately, a billion dollars is a billion dollars and a billion dollars is a lot of power. And people are the people who are trying to remain God with full convictions are trying to remain agnostic on this. And man, do I respect them for that. They're going to have to engage with it at some point or another, whether willingly or unwillingly. And I think that's going to cause a lot of kind of anger. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how people who are used to kind of discoursing and 3,000 word posts uh, are going to handle the sniping of the TikTok kind of era and generation of fans. Um, I will say for my part, my goal, and I will, I'm committing myself to this right now. Um, I will make the last Jedi discourse look like potable drinking water in comparison to the toxicity I'm going to pump out during this fucking show. I will be a one woman fandom menace for the rings of power. I'm going to have a million YouTube videos up where I'm making stupid faces in the thumbnails. I am going to be the heart of fucking darkness for the show. And it's going to be like maybe 50% earnest. So brace yourselves, everybody. I guess I'm going to be a Martin Sheen in this analogy. Um, but no, I'm, I'm going to go back to your uh, Phantom Menace reference because um, I actually can play the part of Senator Palpatine since I am going to be covering House of the Dragon over at the Nauticast podcast while covering the Rings of Power here oh, at the Lord good. of the Rings. So I, I, there is very possible I can play both the Aswaf and the Lotter fandoms against each other and just try to make it and... Uh, I guess my goal is to seize power so that you sign up for the Patreon. I guess you can sign up for either <laughs> the Not a Cast or the My Brother, My Captain Patreon, but um, I'm going to try to do my best to pit them against each other as much as possible for absolutely no reason. Hell yeah. Uh, just to, um, I can't let Emily get all the laurels for, you know, doing some war stuff during the <laughs> television series. So. Uh, well, uh, I guess we're going to like essentially end with our closing arguments about what we expect <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, I guess I'll go first. Um, as I've stated a couple times now, I am basically going into the show as a blank slate. Almost everything I know about what occurred prior to the events of the War of the Ring, I've learned from my lovely co-host here. Um, I've not even finished the appendices for The Lord of the Rings, and I've never <laughs> read the film or anything else. So at least for this first season, I'm going to go in clean with only broad strokes ideas what may happen or will happen. And this is going to piss off a lot of people listening, including possibly Emily, <laughs> but I'm not actually super precious about lore, um, whether in the Legendarium or anything else I love, see Star Wars or Metal Gear Solid, etc., the lore is fun and I love to learn it. And though my pop culture passions are dense with lore, I always viewed it, viewed it as icing and not the cake itself. The lore needs to serve character and theme, or at least the aesthetics if you're doing something in a visual medium. So if they're a little bendy with when, you know, things happen, it's not really going to matter that much to me. And I know this will piss off Emily, but my love of Middle Earth and the Legendarian comes from those Peter Ad Jackson adaptations. And even as I see the weaker choices and neutered themes as we do this podcast, my love stems from those three films. That is ground zeros for me. That is the art I cherish most of all. So the fact that this new story is going to be aggressively against canon, especially in how it will condense a wide time span into a smaller one, honestly has zero effect on me. Uh, two characters who never would have been alive at the same time in Tolkien's text, it's kind of a big who care. 
But that isn't to say I won't be critical of the story that we get or listening to to Emily explain where it succeeds and where it fails. I'm just saying my expectations have nothing to do with the actual plot beyond it making self unto itself. Minus Galadriel Elrond and I guess Celebrimbor, thanks to Shadows of Mordor, I have zero expectations or experience with any of these characters. So I'll be judging how well realized the characters are, both adapted and new to the show, how they speak to the themes for both their race of peoples and this era of Middle-earth, and how it gels broadly with my analysis of The Lord of the Rings and its adaptations overall. And I will be judging the visuals a lot. Whereas I don't have baggage with the lore of Lord of the Rings, I do have baggage with the cinematic presentation of the Lord of the Rings. I've stated often that those films are easily the cinematic achievement of my lifetime in terms of scope and scale of production, in terms of task of adaptation, in terms of living at a nexus point in the history of cinema as traditional film faded away and digital took the throne. This is where I'm most wary about the footage and shots we've seen so far. I should add, and it's going to be hard for me and lots of people to not talk about this in relation with HBO's The House of the Dragon. All I can say is I promise not to be super annoying about it, (laughs) or at least I'll have Emily stop me if I do become super annoying about it. (laughs) I am legit excited for both shows, and it will be an interesting study in that House of the Dragon has both the original creator involved and HBO has infrastructure broadly and Westeros infrastructure specifically already built, while The Rings of Power will be the first Lord of the Rings adaptation outside of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien or Christopher Tolkien's purview and do not have any previous assets they can leverage in building up Middle-earth again. Yeah, that that is a hell of a point. Uh, yeah, the, oh god, I don't even want to go on some of this. I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm going to commit myself to not uh, watching House of the Dragon. I am actually interested in watching House of the Dragon, but I think I might commit myself to not watching it until the Rings of Power season one is done, so that I have no frame of reference for whatever's going on in it. Because um, when Game of Thrones was first airing, I did not watch it at all. Uh, like until I didn't start watching it, I think until season five or six came out uh and and so there would be like these huge roars on social media when stuff happened like i still remember the red wedding happening uh even though i had no fucking clue what that meant um and and that kind of like watching the stuff going on and being like i have no clue what you people are talking about uh was quite fun and i think i might commit myself to that uh for house of the dragon just because i think it'll make recording this vastly funnier (laughs) um Yeah. So, okay. Well, that, that, that thought is bringing me some joy. Um, and none of the rest of this is, um, to be quite candid. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I guess like one of the things I have to keep reminding myself is like, uh, a lo- like a year and a year ago, I had only read the Lord of the Rings books like three months previous, like two years ago, I had, I had not read the Lord of the Rings books at all. I like, didn't really like I'd seen the movies, but I didn't really super give a shit about them more than anything else. Uh, certainly was not motivated to read them. Uh, so like the, the, the kind of Peter Jackson films and having that kind of eureka moment with them in the way that I did, uh, 18 months ago or whatever it was, was also kind of my gateway drug for the legendarium. Um, I, and I'm kind of like feeling a bit kind of uncomfy because I'm like, I want people to have that experience. Like I, like I, you know, getting into the Lord of the Rings in the way that I did and having that kind of feeling of like, 
you know, uh, you've just made your first steps into a wider world, um, into a much bigger world, I think is the line. Um, you know, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and that was that was kind of the exact sort of thing that I needed at the height of the pandemic. It was really great. Um, and getting to kind of find all of these new people that I could suddenly talk to about the Lord of the Rings in really interesting and exciting ways and all of these new things I could learn. That was great. Um, and that was something that, like, I only got because of the films. And I'm sure that will happen for people because of this TV show. And I don't want to like deprive them of that experience. Like, and I don't want to like delegitimize it and make them feel like that because they came to all of this stuff through the rings of power. Like it's somehow the lesser experience. It certainly isn't. And I don't want to ruin anybody's fun in that sense, but also holy shit, um, <laughs> this show. Um, and I will like, I will, you know, put my hand up and say that a lot of my kind of reactions to this show have been like aggressively emotional. But I think, uh, and maybe this is kind of just retrospective rationalization, I, I think some of the kind of aggressive emotionality I'm doing here isn't totally unjustified. <laughs> um, but I guess it's like, it, it's because of a couple reasons. And like the first of which is that like, I'm mad at the state of popular arts and culture generally. And like, I realized that is like both deeply pretentious and also a song as old as time. Uh, but like, I think it is really kind of dog shit um, how derivative and kind of... Um, aggressively stage manage everything is um and you know we talk about this in our normal coverage how like the the obsession with kind of perfection means that like you never see mistakes making their way to screen uh there's never any sort of risk involved in 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 filmmaking anymore there's never any conflict creative conflict to kind of tighten up shore up the the kind of art work um i think all of that sucks uh i think it's deeply fucking grating that everything is the same 20 ips i hate that i have to know what ip is and reference it like that i'm not a fucking lawyer i'm not getting paid uh, a lawyer salary i shouldn't know or give a shit what intellectual property means uh but all of this is i am pretty sure basically the consensus position on this podcast so who cares i'm not going to spend any more time on it the second thing uh and for this i have to apologize for sounding like a kind of boring old left bastard um but i think there's like a kind of sense of like bourgeois entitlement involved in the culture industry right now uh, and i don't like it um and what i mean by that is like not only is there this kind of shameless strip mining of art forms like i think the best example of this right now is is comic books and and graphic novels and those were art forms that were already up for grabs for cinema there's this also kind of secondary drooling unbridled entitlement to things that weren't up for grabs and this accompanying idea that absolutely every story that has ever been written must be remade for movies or tv and if it can't be, then it must be either forcibly reformed to fit the filmable mold, or it should be eschewed and maligned as pretentious, elitist, ableist, whatever. I think it's bad. I think it's bad. I think it's making us all dumber. I, I, I cannot I cannot in good faith support it. I don't think every story has to be redone on film. <laughs> Shocking opinion there. Just as some stories like Star Wars will always be better on the screen than they are on the page, other stories will always be better on the page than the screen. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think a lot of the seething rage you see online over the assertion that sometimes some things are better as books or sometimes some things are better as movies is a very bad sign for our culture. Yeah, and I just want to add just an addendum to what Emily said. Star Wars is specifically better on the big screen than it is on the little <laughs> screen. Like, I really don't think Star Wars... Like, uh, no disrespect to, like, the Clone Wars or Rebels, but I, I still think Star Wars needs to be a cinematic event. 
Um, and I'm not saying that from pretentious or I think people need to go to theaters and give $20 to AMC, but <laughs> I think that is the best realization of what George Lucas wants for the audience. Um, and I, I admit, I have a soft spot for the you know people who only want to release movies in theaters because I do think that is the best medium for certain things, for yep. certain stories, uh, especially with scope and scale. But sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to jump no, in. No, no, I agree. And I also think one of my things that uh, my bugbears on this that people always do, and I think this is so cynical, it's so fucking cynical, is when people are like, well, actually, it's more accessible to do things for streaming. And actually, fuck you, no, it isn't. Like, I, I can't see when I walk into a cinema. I really can't see. And I hate how much darker they've made cinemas over the past 10 years because they've made them noticeably darker even before the film starts. And it's really fucking hard for me to walk into a movie theater. It gives me such bad anxiety because I know I'm going to trip and fall on my face and not be able to see anything. And if I can't get exactly the right seat in the house, then I just miss like 90% of the screen. And even then, even under those conditions, it is still 100% better than, for me than trying to watch it on a cramped ass little screen where like I'm fumbling with everything around me. I can't turn my brain off because I got to worry about the fucking laundry and the dishes or whatever. Like, I hate this argument that streaming is good for disabled people as this monolithic block. No, it ain't. Up the cinema. Yada, yada, yada. Whatever. Also, Manu, watch Rebs. Got that in. <laughs> <laughs> so after this long-winded escapade, uh, my expectations for the show. Uh, I don't fucking know. Uh, I've talked myself into a position where like that I that I actually don't agree with on the basis of I don't want to come off as like a psycho bitch whenever I talk about the show. Um, in my like most unconsidered, irrational, emotional state, I have no hopes whatsoever for the show at all. I think all the signs are bad. Uh, and even when I'm being generous, uh, they're still bad. Uh, in a more kind of measured, I've taken my meds kind of state, uh, I think there's a chance the show could be technically competent. Uh, that would be a technical competency despite itself. Uh, and I will say, I think I was trying to make this to the credit of the TV show that we're talking about here, but accidentally veered into wanting to talk about the TV show I'm way more excited for. Uh, what we've seen so far from Lucasfilm's Andor series, as helmed by Tony Gilroy, who wrote Rogue One, uh, that looks enormously promising, uh, and I think that'll probably lift my spirits, and that probably looks like the right approach uh, to take to a TV show uh, based off of something that is not a TV show. So who knows? Maybe, maybe there is hope in this world. Uh, I don't think I've seen it in the Lord of the Rings TV show on Amazon, but it might be on Andor. So there it is. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to be nice. I really am. And I know it doesn't come across that way. Uh, I don't actually enjoy being mean uh, and I don't actually enjoy not enjoying the things that I'm watching. Uh, I do quite like being happy, generally radical position to have there. Um, and I do feel like I should try and extend some grace and benevolence to, to people and things and artists. But for me, at least, shows with billion-dollar budgets have a slightly higher threshold to clear for that benevolence and grace to kick in than everybody else. And so far, I don't think they've cleared that threshold. Yeah. And I, I think you've, uh, you know, I'd say 99% of the time been totally fair <laughs> um, in what you've, you know, when we've been talking about the Lord of the Rings films. Um, I'll probably, you know, come to it with a little more optimism perhaps perhaps because i'm not burdened with uh you know token brain like emily <laughs> is uh, maybe i'm a little more forgiving i do like the mcu so clearly um my artistic tastes are a little bit in question um i will say i i don't think i like the mcu after phase three if that matters to anyone but i will say that but i think it's still going to be pretty exciting for the two of us to talk about um so i don't want anyone to feel discouraged if we're not 
hitting the hype meter of like the corporate captured critics who are there who, you know, oh, I'm so excited for the Rings of Power. And then they play an ad for the Rings of Power in their commercial breaks. <laughs> um, I don't think um, I don't think you have to worry about us necessarily just being out and out downers or just negative or spending an hour bagging on the show. Unless it's bad. If it's bad, we're going to bag on it. But I think there's. It's kind of like with Star Wars, like even when the Book of Boba Fett sucked, um, me and Emily and some of our friends, we would still be like, well, let's talk about Cobb Vanth for a minute or let's talk about Cad Bane <laughs> or, you know, there's always like little like a little things that allow us to slip into our lizard brain, even if briefly. Um, and sometimes that spins out into wonderful discussion and analysis. So um, even though we're probably a little more skeptical than a lot of the other outlets you might be listening to previewing the Rings of Power, I don't think that's going to be representative or I don't think that's indicative of how our coverage is actually going to go, which is going to be chock full of all the brain, brain worms that you've been used to when you <laughs> listen to me and Emily. Um, I also want to say, uh, I want to pitch this to our dear audience, um, and and I'm going to say this with the horrible irony that I can't drop from my voice because I've got brain damage, but um, if you are genuinely excited for this TV show, uh, and it is a totally reasonable thing to be genuinely excited for this TV show, uh, please do write in, uh, and I'm not going to like try and like take you apart like a fucking wild animal, but I would actually really like to hear from the people who are uh, like openly excited for this show, uh, and I'm, like, you know, Maybe this is, I don't know, emotional labor, whatever the fuck the trendy term is now. But like, you know, pitch if you are into the show, pitch the show. Uh, and I would really love to hear it because um, I feel like I surround myself with a pit of despair. Uh, and with the exception of Anu, who is never a pit of despair. Um, and uh. um, I think it would be really fun to hear from people who are like into into this and excited about it uh, in the same way that, um, you know, I am bubbling with joy about uh, Andor. Um, so if you are brave enough to do it, I will promise to be nice to you, but I would love to hear it uh, from folks. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I am also excited for Andor. I mean, obviously, you know me, I'm like off the walls with uh, House of the Dragon, how it looks so far and it's two weeks away. Um, but I do want to just reiterate, like, Please send us emails about the Rings of Power as you're watching it. Um, we may have to get to your questions um, either in like a dedicated Rings of Power mailbag episode or like in discussion of the episode that follows it. So if you're asking something about, you know, the immediately following episode, we might not be able to timely work it into it. Um, but yeah, if you send us emails during our coverage, um, that should give us, you know, we should be able to cover it, read it on air or incorporate it into some of our discussions as we go along. So um, that's the other thing I guess I should also point out since we're going to be recording like literally minutes after we like watch these episodes, we are pretty much going to record without seeing where the discourse goes or like if the showrunners or actors come out with interviews, which is very common, especially if an actor like dies in an episode or does a big thing. Um, so we're not going to have a chance to get all that kind of like post episode content, which, you know, I'm ambivalent on most of the time anyways, but we'll probably take time in each subsequent episode to see if there's anything important from the previous episode that we missed or didn't have a chance to talk about. So your emails can be a part of that. So please be in touch with us. You'll be able to comment both on the Patreon, um, in our Discord. We'll probably set up a dedicated like mailbag or, you know, questions channel in there, as well as just sending us an email at my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com. You have been told many lies of Middle-earth. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. 
Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you can get bonus content and early episode releases. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers and A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over <laughs> at Not A Cast Podcast. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, uh, where I will be knocking on your door saying, hello, would you like to change religion? That's, I have a free book written by Sauron. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. My mind wandered a bit to that. Um, so the last two tidbits we got, <coughs> Jesus, I can't talk right now. <coughs> Do you want me to go? Um, yeah, you want to read this? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the other things that we got out of this panel is that they...